Hey all, uh, welcome to another episode of Ball. Ball stands for Best Advice and Life Lessons, a podcast show where we focus on talking about the best advice and lessons from world-class leaders, writers, artists, performers, and entrepreneurs from various walks of life, mostly business and tech. Uh, the idea is to deconstruct and tease out their routines, habits, techniques, and the best advice or lesson that they have ever received that you as listeners can use and apply this to your own life and work. I'm actually more interested in learning about things my guests have never said or shared before. Today, I'm thrilled to have Walt Mossberg in this episode of Ball. So Walt is a highly respected journalist, widely credited with pioneering the modern consumer-focused technology review and commentary. Walt created one of the industry's earliest personal tech columns. We'll talk to him about that. Uh, that's been a model to for many to follow. He covered four seminal events in the industry. The dawn of the PC, the dawn of the internet, the dawn of modern mobile devices as we know it, and again, the dawn of social media. So he is often known as the kingmaker of tech products, sometimes driving up stock prices up or down, like the famous XM satellite radio stock that plunged after Walt's column, uh, proving that the pen is indeed mightier than sword. Few reviewers, writers have wielded so much power to shape an industry's successes or failures. So Walt's MO is posing as a champion of the normal tech user, though he's hardly one, and Kara Swisher calls him a freakish geek. Walt was a principal technology columnist for Wall Street Journal, also co-founded All Things D, Recode and the D and Code conferences with Kara Swisher. He was the executive editor of The Verge, editor at large of Recode, websites owned by Vox Media. He wrote a weekly column for both and also a weekly podcast, Control, Walt, Delete. Currently, he serves on the board of the News Literacy Project, which we will ask him about. Uh, Walt is my absolute favorite personal tech journalist, and I grew up reading his reviews and watching his interviews with business and tech leaders. And when I asked him, he was absolutely gracious enough to be on my show. Welcome to the show, Walt. Let's play ball. I'm delighted to be here, Srini, and I'm ready to play ball. Thank you. I would be lying, Walt, if I said I wasn't a bit nervous talking to you or, or actually doing a podcast interview with you. I know you can do a masterclass on interviews, but uh, here we are. And thanks again. I think you'll do great. Don't worry about it. Thank you. Um, let me start off. 2020 so far has been super crazy year and uh, we still have another month to go before the election frenzy. Um, I hope you and your family are doing well. First of all, let's dive in. Uh, I'm very curious to learn if you can share your story. How did it all start? How did you get started? And if you can reflect back on any toughest or difficult period of your life, what would that be? And uh, are there any lessons or advice from that? Uh, well, I... Uh decided I wanted to become a journalist when I was in high school. And I actually started uh, writing small 
articles from my local newspaper in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, I grew up in one of the suburbs of Providence. And um, it was a uh, the kind of thing that's disappearing tragically now. It was a local newspaper. It had, if I remember, about maybe 250,000 circulation. But it had won four or five Pulitzer Prizes by the time I, I started there. And I only really worked there. Uh, I wrote this sort of high school column and uh, I worked there summers, but that's uh, where I got my start. And my goal was to um, uh, get a job covering Washington for one of the big uh, three newspapers, which are still the big three newspapers today. Uh, the the either the uh, New York Times, the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal. Um, and um, so I went to the uh, Columbia University Grad School of Journalism and the Wall Street Journal hired me right out of there. And that was I mean, my, my professors were ecstatic. Um, I had other job offers. They told me to ignore all of them go to the Wall Street Journal. I was instantly a national reporter on a national newspaper. Uh, the only hitch was they wouldn't send me to Washington right away. I had to prove myself in one of their smaller business oriented bureaus, uh, which they had all over the country in those days. And uh, the one they sent me to was in Detroit, which was a very important bureau for, for them. They had five reporters permanently based in Detroit, which is quite a lot if you think about it. And we covered the car industry and the, uh, the United Auto Workers and some other companies uh, based in Michigan and uh, some in uh, Ohio as well. And we also could write about politics or humorous things, whatever whatever we saw and could report upon. And I learned a tremendous amount there. And after, and I covered labor and I covered a couple of national strikes and uh, learned a lot about that. And I cut, wrote some political stories there because Michigan even then was an important uh, state in uh, national elections. And um, after about three and a half years, I did get transferred to Washington. And I had a, for 18 years in Washington, and I had, a, I had a series of beats covering various parts of the government, starting with the labor uh, agencies in the federal government, the Labor Department, and the uh, National Labor Relations Board, and all that, because that's what I had covered in Detroit. So it was a, perfect transition. But then I, I, I covered uh, uh, the environment. I covered the EPA. I covered energy when the energy department was brand new. Uh, I, I was the chief Pentagon correspondent. Um, I was the chief international economics correspondent. So I covered the Treasury. I covered the Fed. Um, I covered uh, the Treasury once James Baker was the Treasury Secretary and 
I covered the Fed when Alan Greenspan was the chairman of the Fed. I used to have interviews with Alan Greenspan and then uh, walk out of the interview and try to figure out what he had just said to me because I couldn't always figure it out. And um, and then I became uh, the national what was what we called the national security correspondent. And really, my job was to cover the Cold War primarily. And at, at the time that I got the job, which was in the late 80s and it ended in the early 90s, I, I had the good fortune to be covering the end of the Cold War, the victory of the West over the uh, communist states in the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union and the reunification of Germany. And so I had the good fortune to be uh, uh, able to write about and, and to witness some major, major events. I was in and out of Moscow often because I traveled with the Secretary of State, who was also James Baker. By then, he had changed from Treasury to State. And um, uh, so I was writing uh, articles that got a lot of readership and were very important. Uh, were, you know, I was really writing about the end of a 50-year epoch in history. Uh, but um, privately, I had become a computer hobbyist, which was very strange because I had no interest in it, had never taken a computer science course in college, not even a math course. I had placed out of math, uh, and I, so I didn't take a math course in college or grad school. Uh, and uh, I knew nothing about computers, but one day I bought a $99 computer called the Timex Sinclair, which was actually invented in the UK. And it didn't have, uh, it had 1K or 2K of, of RAM uh, uh, and no storage, no internal storage of any kind. It didn't even have a floppy drive. You had to use a cassette recorder. Some of your listeners will not even know what I'm talking about, Srini. I think you, you probably do. You had to go <laughs> buy a cassette recorder at Radio Shack, another name which is gone and um, plug it into this thing. You, you plug the black and white TV in for your monitor. And it actually, I learned basic so I could do a little coding, uh, although I learned no other computer languages subsequently and I cannot code today. Um, and I uh, uh, got familiar with and fascinated by computers. This first computer had no communications ability. No, there was no modem available for it. This was in 1981, I think. So I saved my money and a couple of years later, I bought an Apple IIe, uh, which was a more refined model of the original Apple II. I think it had 128K, not, not megabytes, not gigabytes, kilobytes of memory and uh, it did have floppy disk drives and a color monitor and a real keyboard and there I learned to do things inside the hardware like add memory and uh, I, I added cards. The first uh, product 
I've ever bought from Microsoft was actually not software. In those days, Microsoft made a card, a hardware card for the Apple II, which went into a slot because every computer had slots to add capabilities. You had to buy, you would buy these cards and plug them into the slots. And the one Microsoft made allowed the Apple II to run a different operating system, an additional operating system to its native one. And that operating system allowed it to run a, a program called Word Smart, which was the leading word processor. So I did that and I actually soldered certain things inside the computer. So I, I got my hands dirty and I did that. And then I bought a DOS computer and then I bought a Mac. And, uh, you know, so I, I just became a computer hobbyist for about 10 years. And in 1991, uh, I had the idea to uh, start a computer and technology column in the Wall Street Journal uh, with a different premise than the columns that were in other uh, newspapers. And the premise was that most of the columns in the other newspapers were written by geeks, for, for geeks, by techies, for techies, and they had a lot of jargon in them. And I wanted to make my column be the column that championed, as you mentioned earlier, the average user, not a stupid person, not a person who was afraid of computers, but a person who had no interest in learning about how the computer worked, no interest in learning coding, no interest in ever opening the computer, just they just wanted to use it for entertainment, for productivity, for whatever they were going to do with it. And I wanted to be not be reverential about the industry, which I think uh, I thought in those days had made computers too hard to use and were ignoring this very, very large group of people. And that and then the Wall Street Journal allowed me to do that. So that's what I did. Wow, that's awesome, Walt, how you made that pivot. And 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 on that on that note, did you have did you know that it would become such a big hit that it did? Uh, or was it something that you were experimenting with or you knew that the industry was going? What led you to do that? Well, I thought, I mean, look, the personal computer, the mass market personal computer, that is a, a computer that you did not have to be an engineer uh, to use and that wasn't a kit, started in 1977. There were three of them, the Commodore PET, the Radio Shack something computer, I don't remember the name of the model, mm. and the Apple II. And of those three, the Apple II had the biggest impact. It had the first spreadsheet, which was uh, called VisiCalc, and yeah. it was, which was a third party app, but it made a very big difference. A lot of small businesses bought Apple IIs to use it. Uh, and um, it also lasted the longest. I think it died in the 1990s or something. Um, so they sold a lot, a lot of them proportional to the kind of sales computers had in those days. Um, so by the time I started my column in 1991, computers had been around, for, personal computers had been around for 14 years. 
we had uh, we had uh, the graphical user interface and mouse with the Mac, and then about a year and a half with Windows 1.0, uh, and we were up well past that. When, when Windows uh, 3.0 was, I think, right around that time, and um, uh, so uh, computers weren't brand new when I started my column, but they had not been democratized. They were mostly in companies and some schools and of course some homes, but most of the readers of the Wall Street Journal, most uh, people, families did not have a real capable personal computer. And I believed, this was an argument I made to my editors, that this was gonna just explode and democratize. And you could look up the figures of what percent of Americans or people globally had personal computers in 1991, but it wasn't very high. I, I did believe that a majority in the next decade or so were, were gonna have personal computers and that nobody was helping average people understand how to use them. And that, I, you know, I had had, I had, had to belong to uh, both offline and online user groups to figure out how to use my various computers. I had put in hundreds of hours learning it. It was a hobby, so that was fine, but these people had lives to lead, had other things to do, and they needed someone to help guide them through this. And there was actually a war at the Wall Street Journal. I learned later, I didn't know it at the time, where some of the uh, editors, uh, the very top editor was fully in favor of my column, but some of his deputies tried to talk him out of it. They thought technology wasn't important enough to deserve a column. I, I insisted on being on the front of a section, which was a prime real estate in the newspaper. They didn't want to do that. Uh, it was, it was a, a war. And um, so if the column had flopped, let's say within six months, I would have probably, uh, they would have probably canceled it and I would have gone back to being a, a, a regular reporter covering something else. But um, I would say the column became a big hit within as little as 10 weeks or 11 weeks. Uh, they hap It happened they were doing a readership study around that time and found out that my column, which was practically brand new, was already the number two or three most read thing in the newspaper. So they really couldn't kill it. And they, and I, and I was secure from that point on. Wow, and explored it did, and how? <laughs> that was, uh, I mean, it was a staple column for, uh, for me at least, and a lot of us uh, every week waiting for your column, uh, definitely. Uh, Walt, I know it was a big risk for you at the time when you switched and it was a complete pivot from what you were doing, uh, shifting over to a tech column and basically reinventing that particular space, if you will. Uh, how did you, how do you go about choosing your projects or pieces that you did or you say no to? Can you walk me through that process when you got started? I'm sure Absolutely, that. and I think, uh, since this is a podcast where we are giving advice to people or talking about lessons we've learned, one of the big 
uh, lessons that I have conveyed many times to people starting uh, companies or journalists starting new uh, ventures um, is you have to have focus. You have to make some um, scoping decisions right at the beginning of your project. And for me, I made a uh, firm decision, which I never changed uh, in 27 years of writing this column in various places, which was you can't cover everything. So uh, I was only going to cover consumer technology, technology products that were uh, available to and um, meant for use by um, average consumers. Even if uh, enterprises also use them, as long as there was a significant consumer audience for the product, I would consider reviewing it. Um, but if it was a pure B2B product or uh, enterprise software, let's say to, to use a current example, um, Slack or Teams or uh, Salesforce or any of Oracle's products. I, it's not that I had anything against those products, uh, but I, for the purposes of my focus, which I think is hugely important in any endeavor you're doing, you have to have a focus. Um, I was just not going to review those things. And uh, so every week when I would sit down to think about my topic and to think about writing, start writing, I was able to know exactly who I was writing for and uh, not have to try to satisfy the IT guy at Ford Motor Company in, in what he was, his job or, or her job was at the same time as I was trying to satisfy uh, a person who uh, wanted to use a computer at home or in their very, very tiny business, like a three person uh, travel agency or something. That was my audience. The latter was my audience and the guy at Ford Motor. It turned out unexpectedly for me that the guy at Ford Motor read the column anyway and partly because his CEO read the column. Uh, but um, that was not my audience. So that was my, you know, that was to answer your Got question. It. That's the first part of the answer. The second part of the answer is week to week, how do I decide what product to write about? Because there's too many products to fit in a weekly column, you know, 48 weeks a year if you take some vacation. And, um, uh, I wrote my column was on Thursday, so I always uh, I never had a column on Thanksgiving, of course. So that was one week I never had a column. And the answer to that is just I tried to write uh, about two kinds of things, whether they were hardware or software or services. Uh, one was uh, something that I thought moved the needle that was different than what had come before, a new cat, an entirely new. In the old days, you know, you could have an entirely new category of product uh, that no one had thought of before. And there was a lot of that. Uh, or uh, an existing category, which did it 
with a bunch of features that made it much better than what had come before. And I'll give you two examples. Microsoft Word, I think was Word 6, I thought moved the needle really significantly in word processing. And word processing had been around since the late 70s and the early 80s. But Microsoft Word, it was the it was whatever version had automatic on the fly spell checking, for instance, and a few other things like that. And uh, so, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily have reviewed another word processor or another rev of an existing word processor, but that moved the needle. Another example, uh, which is, I think, more obvious uh, and more recent was the iPhone. I mean, there were uh, so-called so-called smartphones before the iPhone, but nobody had ever seen anything with an interface like the iPhone and a browser like the iPhone had and a bunch of other things the iPhone had. And so obviously that was uh, a no-brainer that, that had to be a major review. Got it. I mean, those are excellent examples. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, in your previous segment, you talked about the memory piece. The one thing I wanted to call up is, uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but some years back, I mean, people have said, Gates, Bill Gates said 640 kilobytes of memory is more than anyone will ever need. <laughs> yeah, so, I remember that, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know if that is true or not, but uh, hey, I, I didn't hear him say it, but I, rem I remember that. Yeah, yeah, got it. Hey, one more tidbit, Walt. I don't know. I haven't told you this. Uh, I, I think I mentioned about my email to you about 17 years ago. You may not remember. And because you, you, you mentioned about the focus, I mean, you were focused on personal technology column. So my email to you 17 years ago and this is a little bit of a tidbit for the listeners as well that they may not know, was, hey, Walt, would you be interested in uh, me being an apprentice and uh, starting a business technology column? Because I was all about business tech, enterprise software, and you were kind enough to reply at the time. You may not remember that, um, but it was, it didn't go, <laughs> it didn't have legs. It didn't go far. I, I, I don't think it would have been, successful given the focus of enterprise software versus a consumer tech column. But I thought it was interesting I'd mention that to you. Well, I, I, the truth is um, I tried. I mean, in those days, email was the the only real uh, or, or, or the print, certainly the principal way you communicated digitally. Uh, Maybe it still is. I, I don't know, but it was certainly then. And I tried to answer all my email, particularly from readers uh, and from people, uh, uh, you know, who had startups in mind. <laughs> I, it, you know, I, obviously I reviewed everything important that Microsoft did. I reviewed everything important that Apple did later, Google, you know, the, the Amazon, the big giant companies, but um, I reviewed hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of products from startups, some with as few as two people in them, um, if I thought 
they were great products and some of them you never heard of again after a while and some of them became big deals. Um, for instance, if we think about the pandemic right now and Zoom has become a, a word almost in the in the language, I did the first review of Zoom uh, in 2012. I was the first person, first journalist they showed it to and um, uh, I gave it a good review. Uh, it was, you know, a consumer uh, version of Zoom at that time. And um, and uh, now it's, well, until until the pandemic, it was primarily an enterprise product because they, they always have a mind going to enterprise. And now school children are using it. Everybody's using it. So um, you just have to make a call. Uh, first, you have to make a call on your overall mission and focus, and then you have to make a call on what is the most important thing to do or not do. And here I'll quote Steve Jobs, who I think had tremendous uh, wisdom about a lot of this stuff. Um, he said he uh, more than once, but he said it to me in one of my interviews I did with him at one of my conferences, he said, I'm prouder of the things we have decided not to do than I am of the things we've decided that we would do. Wow, that's that's uh, that's great wisdom. Talking about that, in fact, I was going to check in with you. I know throughout your career, you've been you met a lot of people, business and tech leaders, spent a lot of quality time. Um, I'm sure you have met Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. I'm, I'm, I'm more curious. I think the audience will be very curious as well in terms of your take. Is there any story or lesson that stands out from meeting them? And what's your take in terms of any any similarities or differences? And um, you know, what is it that we can learn from them? Well. Um... I knew many, many people, and some of them, to be very honest, have not gotten the credit they deserve. Um, before I talk about Jobs mm -hmm. and Gates, um, who everybody knows, uh, there was a guy named Jeff Hawkins, mm. who uh, is still uh, he, uh, uh, the head of a company. Uh, he, what, His current company is trying to do brain research and uh, Stuff I don't even entirely understand, but but Is Jeff that, Hawkins in, invented the Palm guy, the Palm Palm Pilot, which was the first pocket mm. computer. I think what I said in my review, this is the first Palm a pocket computer I would ever consider owning and carrying, oh. and many people did, but he couldn't get any any VC funding. He had to actually sell the company. He actually sold it to a modem company in Illinois in order to have the capital to launch the Palm Pilot. And then he and his uh, business partner, Donna Dubinsky, uh, started a, a, a company called Handspring and they developed the Trio, which was, in my opinion, uh, better than the Microsoft phone, better than the BlackBerry, uh, and probably the best smartphone before the iPhone. 
So he doesn't get credit for those things. A lot of people have never heard his name. Another guy who I think matters a lot is Philippe Kahn, who is a immigrant from France, became a citizen, of course, a long, long time ago. And he still uh, has a company, but you know, he uh, had an office suite that com uh, competed fiercely with Microsoft Office for uh, years in the old days. It was, and it was a company called Borland. He also had languages that Borland published and uh, computer languages and, and those competed with Microsoft. But perhaps the most interesting thing he did, which he doesn't get credit for, is um, he essentially invented the camera phone. Uh, he sent the first photo taken with a, with a phone. It was kind of a rigged up job where he wired a camera to a Motorola phone and figured out the software necessary to do it. And he took a picture, a very fuzzy, picture of his baby daughter, who's now a, a, a grown woman, and sent it to a, a number of people. I, I was one of them. And uh, he doesn't get credit either. A lot of people today don't know who he is. But uh, you asked me about uh, lessons and similarities and differences between uh, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. So um, they were very different people. They are, I mean, I, I say were because obviously we've lost jobs. Bill, you know, is still very active, uh, although not in software so much. And um, so they were different people. I mean, uh, Steve Jobs was laser focused on um, consumers and he believed he needed to build the whole thing, the, the software, the hardware, and that design was as important as engineering, all of the things you know about him from the books that have been written about him and the movies and whatever. So um, that was him. Uh, Bill uh, believed that software was the key. He once told me he thought hardware, meaning uh, computers themselves, personal computers themselves, was a sucker's game. He told me that in a private interview once, <laughs> uh, that the uh, margin was much too small and the differentiation was much too difficult. And uh, these companies that made this stuff were his partners, so he didn't say it publicly, but he thought it was a sucker's game. Uh, I don't think he might, I'm not sure he would have approved of the Surface de devices that Microsoft makes now. Not that he would have thought they were bad devices. I'm sure he's, he probably uses them, but I'm not sure he would have approved going into that business. Uh, they made, they always made at Microsoft keyboards and mice, but um, that was the extent of their hardware business for a long time. So, uh, and and they also talked. You know, there were lawsuits and between the two companies, and they talked trash about each other privately, but they had a level of respect for each other. Um, what was similar about them and, and a lesson that I learned, not only from them, but from others, but especially from them, since without them, we wouldn't have had the personal computers that we, uh, the revolution that, that began in 
in the seven, late 70s and which um, led to mobile and, as you said, and, and uh, uh, the internet and social media and all those things go, are dependent on what those two guys did. Um, they were both in, in some ways uh, megalomaniacs. I mean, in, in order to get a new idea like the personal computer, like uh, the Mac, the, the graphical user interface, like Windows, like uh, a software company which had not existed before Microsoft, uh, 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 primarily a, a, or purely a software company, you had to be at some point, first of all, you had to be utterly, utterly determined and you had to be um, in some cases a jerk. I mean, you, 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 they both had chips on their shoulders. They felt the world was against them and they, and they felt that they were changing the world and they were not always so nice to other people, including people in, that worked for them that had been with them for a long time. And there are numerous stories about both of them in this regard. Uh, you know, Jobs called a bunch of the, when he came back to Apple for the second time and saved the company, he said he had to get rid of a lot of people he called bozos. And he said that publicly. And, and Bill was famous for saying to people, sometimes people who were like employee number four, he would say in meetings, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Um, and just be, just go off on people about that. So um, I think that was a similarity. You know, in 1977, uh, I'm sorry, in 2007, on the 30th anniversary of the Apple II, which by the way, had Microsoft software in it, uh, Microsoft Basic, which a lot of people don't know, there was a collaboration in, in, to that extent. Um, in 2007, we, I, conv I convinced both of them to go on stage together. And in that interview, you could see that there was a mutual respect. Um, you know, they took sh some shots at each other, but there was a mutual respect for what each other had accomplished. Got it. Thank you, Walt. I think that is um, a lot of good insights and um, you are absolutely right in terms of um, Hawkins and Khan. I think uh, some of that was actually the turning point in some of those devices, both Palm Pilot as well as camera phones that we probably uh, were not aware of. So thanks for reminding. Switching gears, Walt, um, I'd love to get your take in in the current environment today, right? Um, what does good journalism mean in the day of social media, fake news, how news is consumed? I know you are on the board of uh, the News Literacy Project. Can you share a little bit about that? And what are you most excited about that? Well, uh, let me first talk about news literacy. Um, First of all, the News Literacy Project is 12 years old. Uh, I did not start it. It was started by a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, uh, investigative reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Uh, and he started it because he felt that 
kids in school were not uh, getting any guidance on uh, how to distinguish fact from fiction in what they were reading online, and uh, that they also didn't understand journalism, the role of quality journalism, at, at least in our democratic system. And so he started it by having journalists visit classrooms. Um, and I was, I got a call out of the blue one day to do that, which is how I came to know the organization before I was on the board. Uh, and then we eventually in 2016 created a digital curriculum. This is before the pandemic uh, where, you know, teaching was still done in person for the most part, but many schools uh, su supplied students with computers uh, and um, our curriculum ran on those computers and, or the teacher could just uh, project it onto a screen for the whole class if, every, if everybody didn't have a computer. And the curriculum, which is called Checkology, um, teaches how to distinguish fact from fiction, from, you know, how to recognize misinformation and hoaxes and conspiracy theories, and how not, why you shouldn't share them, even if they, your best friend forwarded it to you, uh, uh, how you can quickly check it out, and how you can, how you should restrain yourself from sharing it so it doesn't get more credence and more and more. You, you understand how something going viral works. It's it's almost logarithmic. And so if you can stop even a few people from sharing, you've stopped a whole bunch of people from possibly seeing something false. So that's one of the things we teach. We also, uh, the students are, are in the lessons, they're put in the position of being a reporter and an editor, and they have to, you know, we create a scenario, it's not nothing political, we're nonpartisan, so it's, you know, mm -hmm. we make up some story about a, you know, a car crash or something, and they have to write a story about it, and they realize that people, even well-meaning people, have different uh, memories of the event and how do they figure out what really happened, what they should report. And then when they're an editor, they have to decide, well, which story is more important than which other story in my laying out my homepage or my website. And um, so they learn about journalism. And then we have lessons about the First Amendment and we, which most students and many adults, most adults, I think, don't know what's in the First Amendment. And uh, we have um, stories about the difficulties journalists have in uh, other some, some other countries uh, where they get arrested and sometimes killed and this sort of thing. So that's what the News Literacy Project does. Uh, this year, just in the last month, we have decided to go beyond the walls of schools and to, to um, we've developed a bunch of resources to try to bring these lessons to the general public. It's harder to change the mind of a 40-year-old person than a, a kid in the 10th grade. Kid in the 10th grade still has a somewhat malleable 
mind and you can teach them critical thinking and news literacy. But in when you're 40 uh, and you are in a bubble on Twitter or Facebook, it can be hard, but we're going to take it on. And so we have a, a, an adult version of Checkology. We have a new podcast. We have a new newsletter and we have an app, uh, an, an iOS and Android app uh, called Informable. And I'm on the executive committee of the board. I'm in the leadership and uh, it's a small organization. It's about 25 people, but we're pushing and um, uh, we're hoping to teach people to be literate about the news as they are about the language or uh, uh, math. Uh, in terms of quality journalism, the question you asked me, I, I don't think it's, I don't think the core of it is different than it used to be. Um, you still are required to uh, uh, do real reporting, get the actual facts, uh, and um, uh, double check them and triple check them and have an editor go over it with you and be sure that you are right. And if you make a mistake, quickly correct it, publicly correct it and apologize. Uh, whether you're in print, like we were in the old days and still are today to some extent, and, or whether you're online. And um, I wrote uh, policies on that in in the when I left the Wall Street Journal and when we started all things D, all all of those things. Uh, we, you have to have ethics. Uh, I don't think journalists covering a company or an industry or a political party uh, should be involved with those organizations. For 47 years, I never owned a tech stock because it was a firing offense and uh, because it was unethical. The difference today is I think where we have a president who um, is prone to telling lies and supporting conspiracy theories. Um, uh, journalists have to tell the truth. And in the old days, it was where we didn't have this situation and we had merely different philosophies about what to do about the facts. We didn't have disputes about what was true. Um, it was fine to say the Republicans uh, have put forward this proposal. Here's what the Democrats have to say about it or the management says this or the and the union says that, you know, whatever. Give both sides an opportunity. Uh, today, I think you're you're and the, and you were act in those by doing that you were giving the reader the truth. Today, to give the reader the truth, you may have to uh, say this side is telling a lie, and you might have to back it up with reporting as to why it's a lie. If the president, if the president says I never found out about COVID until I don't know, and I'm. I'm not trying to be precise about this. I'm just using this as a example. I may have the dates wrong. I never heard about it till March, but now there's proof we heard about it in 
February or January, you can say he was lying when he said what he said about March. And um, here's what we know that uh, proves that he was lying. And it, unless Biden told the same lie, you don't say the Democrat says the same thing, you know. So we have to make some adjustments for our democracy. I'm not saying that reporters should be on one side or the other, <laughs> unless they are opinion columnists, which is a legitimate form of journalism. In fact, my technology reviews were opinion columns uh, because in the end I said, this product is good or bad, or you should buy this and not this, but um, they have to be based on reporting. And um, uh, so I think we have to make some changes. And as far as uh, clickbait, I mean, that's an on, a phenomenon of the rise of online <clears throat> publication. And I think headlines that are far from what's really in the article need to be banned in quality journalism and even if it means less traffic. I agree, Walter. I think it's a lot in terms of, I think there used to be a term, the fourth estate, right, which is the fourth power, if you will. It may be a little bit arcane, but I think. Uh, well, it's still true. I mean, the term true. may be arcane, yeah. but it's still true. Absolutely. Thank you for that. The one one uh, switching gears again, um, what are the things that set of habits or routines that were important to you? Um, that made you who you are. Uh, many a time successful people and people who are good at their trade and their art and their craftsmanship um, have certain discipline, set of rituals and habits. What was yours? I'd, I'd love to learn what what did you, uh, what are some of those things that you can actually, we can learn from? Well, I may be the wrong person to ask. I'm a very last minute, person. Um, <laughs> you know, I thought of my topics in advance, although I didn't have months of or even weeks of uh, usually of lists of, well, I have to cover this this week and I have to cover this next week. Uh, obviously, in many cases, I would have to be testing weeks in advance, sometimes months in advance. So I knew I was going to have to write about it uh, when the company lifted the embargo or the product was about to go on sale or whatever the deal was. Uh, but um, my uh, habit was to nail down the factual reporting first. So know all the specs, interview the company, understand why they designed the product this way and what they were aiming for audience, what was their focus, what did they think of their competitors, why were they better than their competitors, did they think they had no competitors, I didn't always agree with that, you'd be amazed how many people say they don't have any competitors, um, and then do very thorough testing of the product and then come to a judgment in my mind about how this product would fit into the lives of average people, mainstream users. 
and then write my column with my opinion. And I wrote almost all my columns over 27 years the day before they were due uh, and turned them in the morning they were due. Um, I never wrote them and filed them a week in advance unless I was going on vacation or something. And so um, that was my routine. Got it. I mean, in some ways, I think it was Adam Grant, um, a Wharton School of Business professor who said, um, I think he said, it's, it may be counterintuitive, but uh, why you should procrastinate more? Because it leads to a lot of creativity, even though it may be last minute. I think the argument is, hey, while procrastination is a vice for productivity, I think uh, there's a lot. Actually, it's a virtue for creativity. You people are very creative because you have to squeeze in a lot within within a short time 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 frame, and then you come up with a lot of ideas. Um, uh, very interesting to learn that. Well, I agree with you, and especially in a field like technology, which moves very fast. If I had written my columns weeks in advance, um, it would have been uh, actually in many ways unfair to the companies because uh, they were working toward a ship date. There was usually an embargo date before people like me could print our reviews, so they were conscious of that, usually pretty close to the ship date. But, you know, if the product had problems um, and I wrote it three weeks in advance, I might have said it's a terrible product, but they might have patched it and fixed it um, uh, before they shipped. And what I was complaining about might not have ever been viewed by the reader. And um, so by waiting, I got the benefit of any improvements and finishing touches they made on the product. And um, if in my mind I had run into problem X and problem X went away, I never had to mention it to the reader because the reader would never see problem X, it was gone. And that was better for me in terms of being honest with the readers and better for the company in terms of not <clears throat> having to take blame in a very large trusted newspaper and news organization online for something they had already fixed. So um, there were many advantages to waiting. It did make editors nervous though. <laughs> I'm sure whether you're going to make it or not. <laughs> Deadlines are I, I always I always made it. I never miss <laughs> a deadline. I'm sure, I'm sure you did. Um, Hey, one other one other question I had. I'm, I'm, I mean, being being in the industry that you have been in, uh, which is, hey, this is an always on age, and you were deeply into technology. Are there any techniques that you use to really unplug or go off the grid? And if so, what did you? How did you do that? How would you do that? What are some of the tactics? Or are you fine in terms of some people are fine managing? Um, you know, being constantly on the phone or emails and chats all the time, even when they have a break. How do you balance those two? Well, I've never developed a an actual system. It 
if you can't tell by now, I'm not very good at having systems. But um, I, you know, when I'm in with my family and now it's just my wife and I, because our children are grown, um, when we're spending time together, we try not to look at our phones and uh, certainly aren't, don't have computers open in front of us or uh, iPads or anything like that. Um, so it just almost comes naturally. Um, I read, uh, I watch TV before the pandemic. You know, I went out to eat and went to the movies and things like that. And you put your, I'm not one of those people who put his phone on the table when I ate. Uh, if I was waiting for you to appear at our lunch, I might be looking at my uh, Twitter or my email. But once you got there, I wasn't interrupting our conversation to do that. And so that's about that's about it. And so I am off the grid parts mm -hmm. of the time, um, but I don't have a system for it exactly. Srini, uh, can we uh, talk a little about uh, two subjects that I never learned in journalism school, but that were very important in my career and were big lessons I learned? Sure. So one of them is entrepreneurialism, <clears throat> which is very familiar, I'm sure, to many of your listeners in the tech industry. And remember, I'm really not part of the tech industry. Some people have said that to me, but I'm really a, an observer of the tech industry. Um, but um, I believe journalists and many other people uh, who haven't been used to it have to be entrepreneurial. You have to be willing to start new things, new ventures. Sometimes it's a company, you quit a big stable job you had at a big company and you go off to start something new. And I did that. Sometimes it's creating something new within a big company where you have uh, considerable autonomy but also a lot at stake in the success of the venture. And I did that a couple of times while at the Wall Street Journal. First, as we've already discussed with my tech column. And secondly, when uh, my uh, friend Kara Swisher and I started All Things Digital, mm -hmm. uh, which began as a series of conferences and continued as conferences but also eventually became a website and an app. And um, even though it was owned by Dow Jones, so we didn't have any equity in it, uh, we were compensated to a degree that was much, 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 much greater than a journalist typically makes because we did all the work and we came up with the ideas and we hired an entire staff, none of whom worked uh, in the beginning uh, at the Wall Street Journal uh, or its parent company. And we had a, you know, technically we were uh, reporting to somebody 
in the hierarchy of the company, but we rarely uh, did it and they never interfered with us. So you could be entrepreneurial inside an organization or you can quit and start something, but it's very important to think about creating your own dream job and work and uh, being your own boss in a way. To me, I think it's more and more important and particularly in an, in an industry which is in such trouble as journalism. Second, secondly, uh, the other thing I never learned anywhere in journalism school uh, or from my mentors was the idea of being a brand. Um, I think if you're only interested in being a brand and you're not putting in the work or the quality, uh, that's bad and it's worthless. And there are people on YouTube, you can see it probably most readily, who only want to be a brand uh, and don't have much to offer. And, and, and I'm being very broad about this. Sure. Uh, not don't have very much to offer, whether it's humor, whether it's gossip, whether it's news, whether it's entertainment, whether it's Shakespeare, whether it's music, I don't know what it is. People, there are people with a lot to offer and there are people with almost nothing to offer. So it's not a good idea to just try to be a brand. But if you do have something to offer, and I'm now talking about journalism specifically, you also have to pay attention to your brand separate from the brand of the organization you work for if you do work for an organization. It, it doesn't have to be antithetical. It can actually be mutually supportive. You can support the, but by having a big uh, trusted brand, you can be helpful to the larger organization, but you're also helpful to yourself and their brand is also helpful to you. And so I learned those things and I accomplished both of those things. Uh, in the case of the entrepreneurial thing, I did it several times. And um, I um, today, uh, when I'm asked for advice by young, by students or young journalists, I tell them about these things. But 30 years ago, if I was sitting in, the, in a newsroom, and somebody said, oh, you, Mossberg, you have to be a brand. I would have thrown them out. Um, <laughs> so I think those are important things in journalism. Now, those are super valuable pieces of advice, Walt, being entrepreneurial. And you can do that even within the confines of a larger corporation or an organization or a company. And the second thing is equally important for folks who it's personal brand, build, building your own personal brand. And I think you did that long before it was a thing, if you will. In fact, I was going to ask you about some of those advice. What advice would you offer to young writers or entrepreneurs or journalists? I think you answered those questions. Are there anything else that you would like to offer? No, uh, I think just, just get it right. Um, whether you're uh, starting a company that, I don't know, produces a gadget or a, 
a piece of software or some other industry that I'm not as familiar with, get it right. Uh, do you do your homework? Uh, talk to uh, customers and get it right. And then you can someday maybe be rich uh, and then work your ass off and be prepared for some uh, some serious risk. If you're not a, willing to take a risk or you can't take a, a financial or reputational risk, then uh, don't do it. But if you are willing to do those things, uh, you will uh, have a better chance of succeeding. And for journalists, get it right is hugely important. Um, uh, and then the other thing I will, I'll just be repetitive and say, have, and this applies to journalism and everything else, have focus. Uh, if you're <clears throat> the person at uh, Amazon, who's in charge of, I don't know, apparel, selling apparel, or you're the person who's in charge of the cloud service, you better have focus and make sure that you're right there in tune with your audience and that you know who your audience is and that you're providing what your audience needs. And the same is true of journalists. No, that's great advice. Got it. In fact, um, the one question that I wanted to ask you was, um, well, those are your advice. Is there any best advice that you have ever gotten that you would like to share? That when you were growing up or later in your career, some something that it's you remember, which is the best advice that you got? Um, yes, the best advice. Well, I mean, my parents taught, taught me not to lie. And I'm not saying I'm a perfect person, but I will tell you that uh, not lying and not uh, saying anything bigoted were the two biggest sins in my household growing up. Um, other than that, um, the most important advice I ever got was question authority and then question it again. Mm. Um, I learned that as a college student and um, it applies today, whether it's the government or your <clears throat> own company or your, you know, any institution, whether it's the, the, the media, whether it's, you know, a religion, it just doesn't matter. Question authority. It doesn't mean you won't come out thinking the authority is generally right, but you might come out thinking the authority is wrong, either generally or on a particular issue. But you need to question authority. And um, that's been, uh, that is a key to quality journalism. And I think it's a key to a lot of things. Got it. Thank you, Walt. On that note, um, I know we are uh, over time. But uh, thank you so much for your time today, Walt. I really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you. And and Srini, I know you have a day job. That's very important. But um, 
you're a pretty good interviewer, so <laughs> keep at it. Thank you, Walt. And uh, yeah, I do, I, this is a passion for me in terms of talking to folks who can actually share their learning and it's part of the giving. I think uh, you're giving as well. Uh, thank you so much. That means a lot to me.